The following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back, everyone. <clears throat> I have a little cold tonight, so my voice may be a little bit weaker. Um, I just think we may not have time at the end, so I'll just remind you that there are a few things on the table over here. The handout for tonight's, the notes for tonight's class are, are there, and uh, uh, some of you have the flyer for the garage sale. As you probably have heard or maybe saw somewhere, um, we're going to be moving. We've been in this building since 93, and in December, the center bought that community bought a building seven blocks west. So if you haven't, you might want to drive by. It has pink trim. It used to be a, a, a 1950s diner. <clears throat> now it's an empty shell. We haven't started building up, but we have completely taken everything apart. So there's not too much left on the inside. And uh, so we're going to have a garage sale. So you can get be part of that if you'd like, volunteering to sell the stuff. Or if you have stuff you want to drop off in May, and then we'll sell it and use it for the building. That would be great. And also, if you're not currently on the email mailing list or if you're not currently getting the paper mail, uh, the paper flyer, then you can sign up and just indicate whether you want to get things via email or postal mail. And that would be good. And if you do fill that out, you can uh, just th stick that in the little envelope above the water dispenser in the entranceway. Or you can always email that information to us, too. So we're trying more and more to communicate via email just because it's less expensive and it's just easier in a number of ways. So let us know if you want to be part of that. And also just uh, remind people, too, that uh, some of you probably will want to stay connected in some way, find it valuable to be connected to a community to help support your practice. So one of the easiest ways to stay connected here uh, in a way, it's the main event at Kamagana or the Sunday and Wednesday evening programs. And we've designed them to be drop-in, so you don't need to register. You can come by any Sunday, and unless it falls on a major holiday. Any Sunday or Monday, we have our groups. Right now, the Sunday program's in the evening, but probably when we move into the new building, the Sunday morning it will be a Sunday morning program. And what it is is a guided meditation, so you get some basic instruction for 30 minutes, a talk, and a group discussion. And uh, it's nice. There are people there who have been practicing for 20 years and the people who are totally brand new, not even people who have taken the intro class. So we have a, a wide range. And some of you in this room have been to the, intro, uh, to the Sunday and Wednesday program, so you know already. But that's just a nice way to have an ongoing relationship with the community. There are, of course, many other programs. I encourage you to feel comfortable doing any of the retreats, including the residential retreats. Don't feel like you have to develop your practice before you can go on one of the residential retreats or a half-day retreat or a day-long retreat. So just whatever you're inspired to do, just sign up to do it. And if you want to talk more, you can always give me a call or send us an email if you want more information about some of the programs. So any questions about the center in the programs, Mary? Are the Sunday and Wednesday evening the same program? Or the same program, yeah. Uh, 
Right now, the talk is given first on Wednesday and then repeated on Sunday. But probably when we move to the morning program on Sunday, it will be a shorter version of the Wednesday talk will be given first on Sunday and then repeated and expanded on Wednesday. So someone might even want to come to both of them um, because the time allotted for the talk will be shorter on Sunday morning than it will be on Wednesday evening. Mm-hmm. Well, we thought actually at the end of June, but probably now we're thinking more like September. Yeah, <laughs> you know how it goes. <laughs> and we're doing a lot of it ourselves. There are a lot of volunteers uh, doing most of the work. So if you're interested in getting involved in that, you can just send us an email and I'll give your email address to David, who's coordinating our efforts. Uh, he's a community member. And uh, he'll let you know when we're ready. We don't. Ha- we have just the demo permit. We don't have the building permit. So we, that may be a month away before we have our building permit. So sometime in May, hopefully, we'll start building up, putting up the walls, the sheetrock, doing painting, putting in the floor. Of course, we'll hire people to do the more technical things like the heating, ventilation, air conditioning, plumbing. But uh, a lot of the other work we're going to do ourselves. So, and probably for the next several years. <laughs> It will be an adventure. It's already been an adventure. Any other questions about just connecting, using the center? And just feel free to connect with us. So uh, week six is really about integrating practice in daily life. But we'll do a 30-minute sit again. And in the sit, we'll do a little loving-kindness practice at the beginning that I talked about last week, just so you get another opportunity to get some instruction and just to try it out. And then at home, you just incorporate it in a way that feels appropriate. You just have to find what feels right. Um, But just to review the basic instructions one more time, and just to remember what the practice is about. It's very easy to think that somehow we're trying to get some beautiful experience. You know, I sit, and I'm really after something called peace, or something called release, or something called wisdom, or unity, or whatever word you might want to use. But maybe a a more useful way to remember, or to hold the practice, is to think of, we're not looking for a particular experience. We're looking for a way to be free no matter what experience arises for us. So how would we be free if the body's feeling really good? Or how would we be free if the body's feeling really bad? There's a lot of pain or restlessness in the body. How would we be free with disturbing memories or really beautiful memories, exciting thoughts, depressing thoughts? So we're looking for the mind or for the heart that can be free in any experience. And by free, we mean not attached or not clinging, not sticky. So it's a kind of spiritual Teflon. That w- It doesn't mean we're disconnected. Sometimes we think of detachment as being disconnected. That's why we generally don't use the word detachment, because it has a sense that we've sort of removed ourselves from life or have a certain callousness. And that's really not the point of practice. It's being really there in the middle of our experience, or whether if we're sitting, of course, then we're in the middle of sitting practice. But if we're driving, then we're in the middle of driving practice. If we're interacting with somebody, then we're in the middle of that. So how to be free in all of those moments of our life? Like, how is it possible for the heart 
to be disentangled, unburdened in these different experiences. And so our sitting practice is a microcosm of what we'd like to do all day long. So in sitting, mostly what we're dealing with is the sensations of the body as we sit and then whatever's going on in the mind as we sit. And so we're practicing being disentangled, unburdened by that mind-body experience, whatever that might be. And when it isn't strong and compelling, then we just use the movement of the breath as the activity we're practicing being free with, right? And then when something more compelling arises, some more, more disturbing or distracting, then we have to work with that because it's more compelling. We can't be with the breath. If we can be with the breath, then go back to the breath or just the sensations or just hearing something really simple and neutral. But if we can be with that anchor, then we're with whatever it is that's happening, even if we prefer not to be with it. That's how it is now. So we ask, in a sense, ask or practice being free with it. Like, can it be possible to have this disturbing memory without being burdened or entangled, reacting to it in any way? So it's uh, these kind of questions point the mind and heart toward practice. So we're not analyzing what's going on, but in a way, our practice is to use thought to turn our pra- turn our mind back toward practice. The practice of what? The practice of being free. Not entangled, not burdened, not reactive to whatever's going on in the moment. So right there, present, relaxed, receptive, intimate, clear, but not reacting, grasping, clinging, holding. Okay? And the nice thing about doing a little loving-kindness practice at the beginning, it helps to sort of soften the heart a little bit, which allows us, it keeps us from this sort of aversive way of practicing, like, oh, there's that painful thought, and I'll just bear with it, you know, and we're sort of thinking that our practice is just a, if I just kind of clench my teeth, I'll get to the end of the half an hour. But, you know, we actually, we don't need practice in doing that. We've been sort of gritting our teeth and getting through our life for a long time. And all we do is get a stomachache or, you know, me, it's like my shoulders get closer to my ears. And then at the end of the day, I realize it. I let them go. So we don't need that kind of practice. We can just practice uh, not gritting, but um, seeing if, if the heart can be relaxed, soft, loving, receptive no matter what comes up in our set. So let's go ahead and uh, stretch out the legs and we'll settle into our sitting posture. And we'll sit for about 30 minutes tonight and we'll be mostly silent tonight. I'll give a few instructions, but not too many. <clears throat> So if you came up with your own loving-kindness phrases this week, then just use those. Don't feel like you have to use the traditional ones that I'll remind you about. Remembering to find a comfortable and upright sitting posture, some balance between wakefulness in the body and ease and release in the body. And you might want to take a couple of deep, slow breaths to help settle in. 
one more time. Take a nice, easy, deep breath. Fill the lungs. And then a long and easy exhalation. Let the lungs slowly empty. And then allow the breath to continue on its own. Begin with a few minutes of the loving kindness practice. So we'll begin by working with ourselves for a minute or so. And I'll reduce the phrases to just one phrase. You, you can use any phrase that seems good for you. May this heart be safe, happy, and at ease. And then just connect with the meaning of the words and then repeat it when you're ready. May this heart be safe, happy, and at ease. like, you can coordinate it with your breath. For example, you could inhale, may this heart, and as you exhale, be safe, happy, and at ease. might just continue working with yourself with this phrase. 
But feel free now to change if you'd like, bringing to mind somebody easy to love, having a clear sense, if you can, of this person or this being. You just change the phrase slightly. May you be safe, happy, and at ease in your life. Just see who else comes to mind. Maybe other good friends or family members or groups of people, like your whole family together. May you all be safe and happy and at ease in your lives. Could even be the people here in this room. So just another couple minutes. Just allow whoever comes into your mind let your heart connect and send out a good wish, like a beautiful but simple gift of your good wish.
may all beings be safe and happy and at ease. So when you feel ready, just make a transition from the loving-kindness reflection to the mindfulness practice. So the first thing to be mindful of is the effect of having done the metta or loving-kindness practice. Simply noticing how the heart is, how the body is, the mind is. Maybe feeling this residual warmth or tenderness of the heart, connectedness. And then begin to notice the sensations in the breath moving in the body, connecting and sustaining attention. And when it's not possible to be with the breath, you simply look at or open to the distraction. Give it space to be the way that it is. And you can always name it as a way of not getting caught up in it, but just seeing it as something happening in the moment. And then when you can, always come back to the sensations of the breath and the body as an anchor. So we'll continue in silence.
noticing where the mind is and be willing to begin again without judgment
for the last few seconds, remembering this possibility of unconditional acceptance, knowing the mind and body experience here and now, and completely accepting things as they are. Can this be okay? out a little bit. So I want to save some time to talk about integrating practice in daily life, but let's uh, do what we have been doing, take 15 minutes or so, maybe a little bit more, and hear from each other what you've been learning in your practice. It's a good time to bring up any experiences or questions about walking meditation practice, the formal loving-kindness practice that I introduced last week, or just any questions about working with what's coming up in your mindfulness practice. So anything come to mind? It's a good sign. <laughs> Either we're all confused or there's nothing coming to mind. those more um, calm, sublime places, then what we want to look at is if the mind likes that place, then we actually want to look at the state, the mental state of liking. Just like if we had pain arise and we didn't like the pain, we'd want to look at the mind that doesn't like, so we're actually being mindful of hatred. I mean, maybe that's a strong, too strong of a word. But in the same way, when there's a pleasant state, a wholesome state, then we want to look if there's any attachment or liking of it. And again, not to make it go away, but just to see this is the pleasant state, the calmness or whatever, and this is the liking it. Because if 
we don't see that, <coughs> then when it starts to fall apart, as everything does, nothing lasts forever, even calm states, peaceful states. So when it falls apart, then we won't be disappointed because we saw the attachment and we didn't get identified with it. But if we don't see it, we'll get identified with it. We'll actually feel like there is this calmness and I really like it. I feel like I'm being taken care of by it and I don't want it to change. And so when it inevitably changes, then we feel justified in suffering. And so we suffer. And uh, that can be avoided. If we understand, it's not like we ignore the pleasant states. It's really good to be very intimate with the pleasant states, the wholesome states, just like we are with the unwholesome states. But we don't, we're not really there with them uh, thinking that they're going to last forever. We're there with them knowing that they're in permanent states, that they'll last for a while, and then things will change. So that's, that's one thing you can do, because what we tend to do when we get to those nice places is we tend to relax, which is good, but we don't want to stop practicing. So generally, we relax and stop practicing. Like, oh, I'm here. Why bother practicing? <laughs> and so we want to maintain the brightness, you know, that half of practice, which is the brightness, really seeing what is it like to have a calm mind, a peaceful heart. What is that like? really seeing it as a moment-to-moment -moment experience, calmness, peacefulness, tranquility, is like this. Can this be okay? Meaning, no grabbing on, no holding on, but just letting peacefulness be peacefulness. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. You said Meredith? Thanks, Meredith. Other thoughts or things you're seeing in your practice? <clears throat> Todd? two different practices so it's it's appropriate to, to have a sense that they're they're really different and uh, and then so but even though they're different when we're repeating those aspirations as you call them I think that's an okay word for those phrases that we repeat where we have a wish but what we're doing is we're not focusing so much that this happened that this person be at ease but what we're what we're doing is we're being mindful of the heart that actually does wish well for ourselves or for another being. So it's not so much that we're focusing on what we're wishing for, but we're actually recognizing, we're being mindful that we actually do care or we do wish well for this person. We do wish for their health or well-being. So we're not, uh, it's a subtle difference, I know, but we're trying not to get in the mode of uh, imposing our wish onto the world like I want the world to be this way but what we're doing is we're really watching the heart and even though it might be quite faint that's why we start with a person that's easy or we start with ourselves assuming that that's easy uh, because then if we're just sitting here reflecting on you know there is this mind and body that I call myself right here and I care about this life and so then it's actually we don't need to concoct a well-wishing, because we do care. So when I say to myself, or when I say in my practice, may this heart be at ease, 
what I can really do is just be mindful of that connection or that tenderness or that caring in my heart for myself. And all I'm doing is putting words to what I'm seeing. That's kind of more what the metta practice is. Even if it's faint, we're finding that part of the heart that feels tender and connected, and we're putting words to it. But I really get what you're saying. And the metta practice can turn into attachment, and that's called, in metta practice, we call that the near enemy. It looks like loving kindness, but it's actually attachment or desire masquerading as loving kindness. Like, I want you to be happy. And so we have an agenda, and I will be disappointed if you're not happy or if the world conspires to make you unhappy. That's not loving-kindness, that's attachment. Loving-kindness is when we see in the heart that it cares or that it, it wishes well for ourselves or for someone else, and we just appreciate what we're seeing in the heart. And we're putting words to it. The words are really helping us to see it in the heart. You know, when I say, may you be happy, it, like, it really helps me to tune in to the part of my heart that actually wants this person or wants myself to be happy. So in a, the, the main point I think that Todd's making, though, is in the, all spiritual practices kind of fall along a spectrum to more intrusive practices. To the ultimate spiritual practices is not practicing. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not doing anything. It's like a complete surrender, a complete opening. That's all we're doing, is we're letting go of any ego-based activity, I guess we could say. So that's the ultimate practice. But uh, as a practitioner, we want things to do all along that way. So some of our practices require more willful effort, and other of our practices don't. But even in mindfulness practice, there's a full range. Like sometimes we take a very uh, definitive stance, like I'm going to pay attention to the breath. And we really have that strong resolve to connect and sustain attention with the breath. And other times it, it slides more to this end of the spectrum where we're just letting whatever is predominant be known. And if the breath is predominant, then we're knowing the breath. But if the breath isn't predominant, then we're just knowing what is predominant. And we're not picking and choosing. We're not even sort of imposing on our practice or on our mind, this is my anchor. So even in mindfulness practice, there's that same kind of spread, too. It's just that metta practice is a little further over here, generally, than here. And you'll find that there are ways to do metta practice that's more at this end of the spectrum, too, especially as you get a sense of what the practice is really about, which is just connecting with this natural part of the heart, then it doesn't uh, doesn't need the phrases so much. But they're very useful at times, for sure. What else are you noticing in practice? Or questions that you might have? Mm -hmm. And your name again? Pat. Pat. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. And of course, uh, I probably have addressed this question. I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating, you know, thousands of times. And it's appropriate for it to, for it to keep coming up. Because it's, it's asking ourselves this question and, and, it, and actually, more importantly, reflecting on this question that you just asked that helps us understand what the practice is and what it isn't. And it's, a, it's appropriate not to be clear because if we're really clear about the practice, that means that we don't really understand the practice. Because actually what we're trying to cultivate is something so different than our normal way of being in the world that it should be confusing at first. And one of the ways, the most obvious way that the practice is confusing is it looks like passivity. It looks like we're just letting everything be. <clears throat> but there's only one thing we're letting be, and that's our reactivity. So we're not stopping our personality. Mindfulness practice is not about repressing the personality. Let me say that again. Mindfulness practice isn't about repressing the personality. Now, in meditation, the formal sitting practice, we're limiting our options for 30 minutes or 45 minutes to just sitting and, and knowing what's being known, right? But we're not, even here, we're not repressing the personality. We're just not acting anything out in the meditation period. But that not doing anything during the meditation period isn't supposed to be a metaphor for how you should live your life. So your kids ask for, you know, the car keys, and you sit down and meditate. <laughs> you know, your husband wants to do this, or your partner wants to do that, and you sit and meditate. You know, you end up very quickly either in a mental institution or all alone. <laughs> so that, that's clearly not what we're talking about. But it's, it makes perfect sense that we might think that that's what the practice leads to. So what we're, what we're learning to do in the sitting practice is to see the, the various habits of the mind to react to experience. So there's pain in the body, and then there's the, the impulse to react to the pain with not liking it and wishing it were gone. A difficult memory comes, and we don't like it. Or an exciting thought about our future comes, and we like it. We sort of lean into it. So the mind is constantly in this mode of having experiences, those experiences are known, and as they're being known, we react with greed, aversion, or denial, ignorance, delusion. So there are those three basic ways that we react. And this is what we're learning to let go of. This is all that we're letting go of. And what this does is it frees up the personality, actually. So in a sense, one of the fruits we should see if you practice meditation is it's uh, we're more quick to respond. Now, in the middle, at the beginning and middle of practice, there there is a certain uh, awkwardness because <clears throat> now I'm talking about not sitting practice, but the, the effect in our daily life. So we're going about our daily life, and uh, there's a difficult situation at work where uh, somebody's doing something wrong, and you're trying to figure out what to do about it. You know, should I say something? Should I just keep quiet? What's my responsibility here? I care about the company. I care about other people, and what they're doing might be damaging, but I don't want to make waves, and I'm afraid that people will retaliate. So you're in this predicament. And because you've been practicing, as soon as this predicament arises for you, 
because you've been practicing, doing your sitting practice, all of a sudden you're going to have this comprehension of all the different emotional impulses that are arising, like fear of standing up and doing what needs to be done, or uh, you know, wanting to be seen as somebody who's good, you know, or afraid of being judged as a do-gooder. You know, so the, this whole web of different emotions, except now there's a certain comprehension because of the steadiness of the mind and because we're, we've developed the facility of, of recognizing internal states, which we're mostly oblivious to because we're so distracted by the external, now we have this, in a sense, of vocabulary to see and understand what's going on. And we have a sense of what's skillful and not skillful. So in the early stages of practice, it can feel awkward because we feel the strong impulse to do something, but we see that it's being driven by an unwholesome intention. So we don't want to do it, even though we feel like we should do it. And so there's a, a little bit of this, you know. But that's good. That's better than acting it out. So in a way, this may look like we're being passive, but to pay attention in this way is hyperactive. I mean, it takes tremendous energy and effort to maintain this awareness of what's going on internally. The more we practice, the more quickly we see what's unskillful and just and, and in seeing it clearly, it's like we look right through it and it loses its charge. And we keep looking through the unskillful things and they lose their charge. But whenever an, a skillful impulse arises, like uh, doing the right thing because we want to take care of the community or take care of the company, we just ride that wave, so to speak, into action. And so what we find more and more is that we just do the right thing fearlessly Sometimes the right thing is to keep our mouth shut. And sometimes the right thing is to get up and say something and do something. But the only way we're going to know whether it's the right thing is do we have this sort of inner comprehension of the skillfulness or unskillfulness of our different intentions? Is the intention flowing out of greed or aversion or ignorance? Or is it flowing out of compassion or patience or some kind of wholesome intention? So the, the point is actually to be a real dynamo in the world. But different, but different personalities are different. So some dynamos, I don't know if that's the right way of saying it, but you know, some people, when they're really, their practice is deep, their, their focus may be very specific, like on raising their kids or on taking care of their garden and being a kind neighbor and being kind to their elderly parents. And other people will try to change the world and address the issues of poverty or address the issues of war or something like that. But it's not like one person's practice is better than another's. You know, whether you're dealing with global issues or just issues in your immediate surroundings. Does that, does that help? Thanks, Pat. Other thoughts people have? We have a few more minutes before we go on. Any other confusion about the instructions or about what you're noticing when you sit? And please don't be shy, like, feel like, oh, I don't want to say this because it sounds like my practice isn't going well. Mm -hmm. uh, my name's Jerry. Can you tell a little bit more about, again, about dealing with pain? Like, today I had a problem with my, my left knee was really acting up, really uncomfortable. And then when I moved in my back, I was just feeling unwell. So I spent a lot of aversion on pain. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, of course, is probably one of our deepest habits, is to be averse to pain. 
I mean, it's bad enough that pain is unpleasant, but what we have is a very deep, strong mental habit to hate it. And then that's also really unpleasant. And, and in fact, most of the time, and you see if this is true for you, most of the time, the unpleasantness of hating the pain is more unpleasant than the unpleasantness of the physical sensations themselves. And so that we can... Getting worse. Hmm? Or the fear of it getting worse. Yeah, which is just another expression of the aversion, of the hating. It's just a kind of a riff off of the hating, the fear that it's going to get worse. So that we can actually do something about. And the basic way to do that is we have to recognize it. And the place we see the hatred of the pain or the fear that it's going to get worse, the place we see that is by being learning to be intimate with the pain. Because the more we're willing to open to the pain, then what we see revolving around the pain is the, that mind state that hates it or that's afraid that it's going to get worse. And then it's a very easy way, a relatively easy step to sort of look and see that that mental activity is really unproductive. And the, the simile I've, I've been using is like we notice we're holding a hot pan and we just let go. And we don't even need to think, oh, you know, I should stop hating this pain. As soon as we see the hating or the fearing that it's going to get worse, we just let go because it's completely unproductive. And no mind, no uh, healthy mind consciously hates something consciously is fearful. We, we do it unconsciously. We're, it's like when we're not really seeing it, then we justify hatred. But when we really see what hatred is, nobody does that. Nobody consciously chooses to be numb. Nobody consciously chooses to lust or crave because it's really painful. But if I fixate on what I want, I can justify a lot of craving because I'm not paying attention to the pain or the craving. I'm fantasizing about what it's going to be like when I get what I want. And so that juiciness, there is a little sweetness. You know, it's like, a, in a sense, a false sweetness. But there's, it has, it's like a mirage. It sort of tastes like, like when you think about something you really want, there's, a, there's almost like a little bit like you're actually getting it, right? That's the power of our imagination. So that's why we get hooked. But it doesn't really satisfy us because it's not really there yet. It's just the thought of it. And so we fixate on that and we keep repeating it. Because it's unsatisfying, we keep repeating it. But the problem with that is it helps us miss how painful the craving is. It's the same thing with aversion. So you want to use the pain as an object of attention. So instead of the breath now, we turn directly to the pain as best we can. And really emphasize the tranquility part. Remember, there's two parts, brightness and tranquility in terms of keeping the mind in balance. Generally, with pain, it's pretty easy for the mind to be bright, right? Because the pain wakes us up. It's not so easy to be tranquil and relaxed with the pain. So you really want to emphasize that and really use your this sort of uh, awareness of your physicality and just remind your body to be soft as you get more intimate with the pain. Oh, yeah. I can just relax. It's not going to kill me. So start with pain that you know actually isn't going to kill you and isn't going to do any lasting harm. And then as you learn to be physically relaxed with the pain, that means you're getting a little closer to it. And then really see if you can notice where the pinpoint of greatest intensity of the pain, like does it have a center? 
And can you put your attention at the center of the pain? And what that does is it necessarily exposes any reactivity in the mind around the pain. And then you can just see it. So you're using the pain as the main object of attention, but you're noticing how the mind is reactive, the different impulses in the mind that arise as you get closer or more intimate with the pain. And then you look at it, and you go back to the pain, and then you look at the impulse. You keep seeing how unproductive these habits are to hate the pain, to fear that it's going to get worse. And then when your mind gets exhausted, because this is an intense kind of practice, then move your attention away from the pain and maybe open your eyes and listen to sounds for a while. Something that's more soothing for the mind, take it away from the pain. And then when you feel more refreshed, go back into the pain if it's still predominant. Yeah, thanks for the good question. Pain is obviously something that will be a great teacher for us for a long time. It doesn't go away as a good teacher. Mm-hmm. And I forgot your name again. Mary. You're going to have to be loud if you can so they can hear you in the back. Good question. Did you hear? She's asking. The question is basically. <coughs> it seems, um, Mary. It's Mary. So we just, Mary said it seems like uh, some desire is necessary, and uh, like the desire to to be wise or to be loving, or desire to develop her meditation practice. And how does that relate to greed, which I've been talking about as an unwholesome mind state? Is that sort of the question? And it's really for us to find out, because remember, these three, what I'm calling three unwholesome tendencies of the mind, they're basically defined by the fact that they lead to suffering or stress. So greed is a mind state that leads to stress, to suffering, to a, a a burdened, entangled mind or heart. If it doesn't lead to burden, a heaviness in the heart and an entanglement in the mind, then it's not greed. It's something else. So the difference between wholesome and unwholesome desire is its effect. Wholesome desire, like the desire for peacefulness, the desire to take care of ourselves and all beings, these desires should, if they're wholesome, lead to to a peaceful heart. Unwholesome desires, which we generally in Buddhist practice would call craving um, or greediness, that leads to an agitated, entangled, burdened heart or mind. So I, does that make sense? So it's really a prag- the, the answer is really pragmatic, and it's for each of us to see. Now I can give you a little bit of a hint. You know what I've seen is that when the desire has a lot of self-centeredness behind it, like I want. And, and it's really, the desire is really fueled by the I, by the me. Then it tends to be agitating and entangling and, and heavy. If it's not so much based on self-centered thinking, then it tends to be a wholesome desire. But you can just see for yourself the, the effect of the different desires. So I think I'll leave it here. 
So I have a, a little bit of time to go through the notes that uh, if you didn't get, you can get at the end on the table. As I've mentioned a couple times over the six weeks, you know, the real goal in practice, in formal meditation practice, is to be able to live this way all through our lives, not just in the 30 minutes or whatever that we're able to put aside every day to set. <coughs> so these are just five ways that you can specifically begin to work with the rest of the day. And I really encourage you as I go through them to specifically think about a way that you can do these five things in your day. <coughs> Ways that really make sense given your current living situation. Now the, the most important of these five and probably the hardest of these five is just to remember the difference between how we normally relate and normally interact in the world and how we might interact from a, a practice point of view. Like, how do we remember the difference between being Mark and how he's been normally conditioned and being Mark, the person who's interested, interested in waking up or who's interested in being mindful? How do we help the mind remember that or kind of do that turning from sort of conventional way of being to maybe, you know, I know it's a little bit of a overused word, but a spiritual way of being. How do we do that turning? Well, we need a particular, you know, it's going to be different for each of us. We need a particular image or phrase that helps the mind remember your deepest understanding. It's like, how do we bring, in any given ordinary moment of our life, how do we bring up our deepest understanding in that moment? So it could be that, you know, I mean, silly things, but not... I mean, the things that are quite useful, you know, you might put on your computer screen, if you spend a lot of time in front of a computer, a simple phrase. Like, you know, one of the things the Buddha said is, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Now, that's, for me, a really pithy, useful phrase. Nothing should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Now, if you had that on your refrigerator, or on your nightstand, or on your computer, <clears throat> or you wrote it on a piece of paper and you put it in your pocket, so every time you put your hand in your pocket, you felt that little note and it reminded you. It's like a nice reminder. It can really turn the mind around. So when we're walking down the street and we put our hand in the pocket and we remember nothing should be clunky or as I, me, or mine, all those thoughts about this or that, it's like that reminder can help us cut through of a lot of that chatter that's basically coming out of greed and aversion and fear and delusion. Now, there are a lot of different phrases. So, you know, don't just say, oh, this is the phrase. Once somebody asked uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, a really famous Thai meditation Buddhist monk and meditation master who died in the 80s, <clears throat> he taught a lot of the Western teachers. And one Westerner once asked him, if you were on a desert island and you could only have one thing or bring one thing along, what would it be? And he had this great answer. He said, I'd have a medallion. And on the medallion would be printed, this is how it is. <laughs> Isn't that nice? So you can do that. Wendy Morris, a good friend of mine and somebody who sometimes teaches at the center, um, she, over the years, has gone to the pet stores, you know, where you can make the little dog tags. 
and she's got a nice little chain, and then she's got a set of different dog tags with different phrases on them, or words, like one word, one dog tag just says equanimity. You know, and then depending on where she's at and what's up for her, she'll pick a particular dog tag and attach it to her chain, and she'll just have it around, just as a reminder, you know, loving kindness. Everything can be met with loving kindness. Or whatever particular way of reminding yourself of this possibility of being free. The idea is to practice being free. So what we want to be reminded of is not freedom so much because then we end up imitating freedom. But we want to be reminded what might be in the way of freedom. That's what we want to be reminded of. So if we had this is how it is, then what that might be pointing to is like what's in the way is that <clears throat> we want to deny this is how it is. We want it to be something other than this. And if we can just recognize what well, this is how it is, then it's relatively easy to just accept it because <clears throat> how does it make sense to resist something that's already true? It doesn't make sense. Okay? So that's the first thing you can do. And then find a place or places to put it so you remember. And for some people, it won't be words. It will be an image. But find a way to remind yourself. And it may work for several months, and then you might need another phrase or another image. It could be something you've read or something you heard or something you, some of your own words. Just basically sum up your deepest understanding. The second point here, and please do this as we're talking, think about a time, that something that happens regularly in your life that's difficult for you. It could be like a particular person or a particular situation that arises with some frequency. It shouldn't be something that's happening all the time, but more than once a week. So you have some time to practice. And then the most important part here for number two is you have to set your intention often to turn this into practice. Which means, like, when you wake up in the morning, you have to remember, okay, later today I have this business meeting, and this is always challenging for me. I always have a lot of shame or humiliation in this meeting, in these kind of meetings. So I want to practice here. Now, it shouldn't or it doesn't need to be the most difficult situation in your life. Maybe something that's moderately difficult. So you're getting some ideas. And then, then now, <clears throat> make the strong intention in your mind. So you're actually talking to yourself. You're connecting with this basic wish that there's probably something here to learn. It's my intention to use this situation every time it occurs to understand it, to see something that I haven't yet seen. Not so much externally, although that too, but mostly to see internally what's going on that you haven't seen, like your own reactivity, your own impulses that are arising in the mind and the heart. To have some more clarity, some non-attached clarity with all the different forces, all the different habit energies that get triggered. To be able to see them with mindfulness. And to see the skillfulness or the unskillfulness of those different habits. That's the intention we're setting. Now, you don't want to just set it tonight because that's a pretty weak intention. But tomorrow morning, you want to also set it. And probably at least two or three times a day, you want to specifically, in your mind, 
repeat your intention to practice in that situation. If you do this enough, then what will happen automatically is a few minutes before the situation arrives, just remember your intention. It will just pop into your mind. Oh yeah, I made an intention to practice. It's like a little mindfulness bell going off. You may not want that mindfulness bell, but if you set your intention enough, it will go off and you'll remember, oh yeah, I made this commitment. Now remember, the commitment isn't to go into that situation and to be perfect. That's not the commitment. The commitment is to remember to practice, which means that preferably before the situation begins, you remember and you drop into the experience of your body. Because that's your real anchor when you go into a difficult situation. It's like your feedback will be watching your body and just noticing how the tension comes up. That's how you're going to be able to stay in touch with the different emotions and mental habits that get triggered, is you'll see them in your body. Watching then things in the mind, it, things happen so quickly that for most of us, our practice isn't strong enough to see it there. But we can read it in our body. So before we walk into the meeting or go home to see our parents or whatever it is that's difficult for us, we drop into the body, <clears throat> we become sensitive and intimate in the body, and then we just go into the situation without a plan except to be really there, really present, and especially present with the body. Remember, it's not about trying to be perfect. It's about being awake, being mindful. That's what the intention's about. The perfection of our actions or the appropriateness of our action will come from being mindful, not from trying to be perfect. Trying to be perfect would just make us unlivable. You know? We won't want to live with ourselves and nobody else will if that's all we're doing is trying to be perfect. So that's the second one. So does everybody have a situation? Because if you don't do it now, you know you're not going to do it. Well, maybe you will. I finally typed up these notes. So uh, you, maybe you'll read it and you remember to do it later. But it's probably a good idea to have a sense of what you're going to work with now. And then once you get really good at that situation, then just, you know, after a couple months or whatever, then just think of another difficult situation in your life and start to work with that. So it can be anything, like you hate to cook or you hate traffic. So whatever you find yourself reacting to. So the third one is... This is one you should like to do. There's absolutely no reason people shouldn't do number three, which is once a day, put aside at least five minutes and probably no more than 15 to practice relaxation. Because, <clears throat> believe it or not, we're all pretty bad at it. <laughs> you know, we have such a strong sense that we should be rushing and that life, we should be tight. I mean, that's what life is asking us to be, tight, tense. So one of the nicest ways to do, one of the easiest ways, is just the savasana. I don't know if you guys know this, but one of the basic yoga poses is savasana, the corpse pose, where you lie down, preferably not on a bed, but on something uh, relatively hard, like a carpet or a pad or a stiff bed, and just a little pillow under the head, just enough so that the chin is slightly tucked in and the spine's in alignment. Arms out to the side, usually palms up, legs comfortably apart. Cover yourself with a blanket if you're a little cool. So it's a nice, relatively comfortable position for meditation. And here then, we meditate on the physical sensations of relaxation, which are pleasant. And the mind likes to pay attention to pleasant things. So 
No, it isn't pleasant for long. You know, after a while, we either fall asleep or it becomes unpleasant. You know, right? You can't lie there for long, especially if you're on something relatively hard, like a carpet. It's comfortable for 10 minutes or so. So you want to use that and basically drop the world, the world of future, the world of past, the world of duties and responsibilities, and this and that, and just pay attention to the quality of relaxation, of letting go of physical tension. Okay? Now, there are other ways to do it. You could, for someone, the way, the best way to do this five, ten minutes of relaxation is to turn, you know, you go home, you see your cat, you sit there on the bed, you snuggle up with the cat, and you pet it for five minutes. But you really do it with a sense of dropping the whole world of being whoever you are and just relax. Just let go or let this be what it is. So generally, this is going to be a pleasant experience, but you're going to be really conscious, mindful of the pleasantness, because this will, uh, being really mindful of pleasantness tranquilizes the mind. Because all of our doing is in this, usually, most of our doing is in the seeking of pleasantness, right? So if we're really attuned to pleasantness, it unplugs that part of the mind that's seeking pleasantness. Could be a bath. You know, maybe this is a daily ritual for you to take a bath. So you really turn it into a really pleasant experience, whatever that means for you. And you bring in your mind to calmness, to tranquility, to quietness. You're, you're sort of doing whatever you can by focusing on the pleasantness of the experience to undo any tendency towards doing, towards seeking pleasantness. Okay? So you got to do this, though, because if you don't do it... And the neat thing about doing this every day or almost every day is the mind actually gets really good at it. It takes less time. <clears throat> and here's the best part. The mind learns the principle of going from its normal agitation to this tranquility, and, it, and it's able to replicate it even without the bath or even out without the deep relaxation, the savasana pose or the patting of the cat. It's like it just knows where that place is. Does this make sense? But you have to do it so many times that the mind, you've cut a groove, and the mind just knows how to go from agitation to tranquility. You have to do it enough times consciously. This is the key. You can't do it unconsciously. So whether you're taking a bath it's not a time to space out. You really want to pay attention to the pleasantness. Let your mind be wrapped, focused on the pleasantness. Okay? And notice the effect. That's number three. <clears throat> okay. Number four and five in three minutes. Well, four is just another... You can just choose here, choose a neutral activity that you do. And you're just going to practice doing it as if it were the most important thing in the world. So... Slow it down a little bit and do it wholly. Like, if you don't do this right, everything will fall apart. So you really want to do it right. Brushing your teeth. You could, for some people, they do opening, closing doors. Um, uh, washing dishes. So choose something that is relatively neutral for you and where you're not having to do a lot of talking because that will be distracting. And then turn this into... A little, uh, a little kind of Buddha practice where you're this perfect Buddha 
doing it with full presence, as if this were the most important thing to do. So it might be something like uh, you park your car in the garage and every day you walk from the back door to the garage. And so that may be your neutral activity. And so when you step out of that door, you it's like, okay, I'm going to be completely here now. You know, and every day you just do the best you can. And then when you get done with it, you forgive yourself for being imperfect. And you say, next time, I'll do a little bit better. Okay? So does everybody have a neutral situation? Whatever it is. It could be brushing your teeth, combing your hair. could be washing dishes. could be walking a particular place that you do. could be a hallway that you go through in your house, you know, several times a day. Okay? Emptying the humidifier. Taking the garbage out, well, that may be too aversive. Unless you like, I like it because it gets me outside, you know, and especially at night, kind of walk out, get to check out things, see the weather. And then finally, number five, which is really no specific instruction, but just remembering that it's not easy being a human being. It's not just not easy being a human being here, but it's also not easy for everybody else to be a human being. So we want to infuse our whole life, our sitting practice and everything else, with compassion and forgiveness and a good sense of humor. You know, this is a nice thing about being connected with other people who practice or being connected with the center, where people come together to talk about practices, that we can remember that it's not easy being a human being, and we can remember to laugh about the fact that it's not easy being a human being. It's easy, given how we've been conditioned, it's really easy to get caught up in life and to suffer more than we need to. And it's really easy to forget the possibility of not suffering. So we need to have a lot of patience and forgiveness and uh, a sense of humor. So please join us here at Common Ground whenever it makes sense or find another place to practice with community. It really makes a difference. If you really want to do this practice, if you feel like this is a good fit for what you're looking for in your life, I recommend that you find a way to connect with other people who are also practicing. Otherwise, you might find it really difficult, despite your good intentions, to stick with it. As you know, it's not the current of our culture. It's it's flowing the other way, (laughs) towards distraction. So if you really want to cultivate non-distraction, you need to get some support. So feel free to come up afterward if you have any questions. If you have any tapes to return or would like to bring, get us some tapes at some of the classes that you've missed this last six weeks, please come up. And feel free to join in the other intro classes down the road. If you want to come back, just take the whole set again or just come for particular classes, it's really okay. You can always email us or contact me by phone if you'd like to just drop in for some of the, the workshops. What's the workshop You mean the intro workshop? The introduction workshop? Yeah, it's just a chance for people to either who've been practicing for a while to get a refresher or for people who couldn't do the Thursday night class who just want a basic introduction but maybe have been coming to the Wednesday or Sunday programs. But basically it's open to anybody who wants to come, including people here. Yeah, there's lots of space, so please join us for that. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words... And one of the things that we regularly do at Common Ground at the end of programs is we do something called sharing the merit. 
So we just have a sense of the goodness or the wholesomeness of our mindfulness practice or loving-kindness practice, and we consciously share the benefits, the goodness, with our parents, our loved ones. So whatever good comes from our practice, may they somehow benefit. And with our colleagues and our friends, And then we aspire to practice in a way that supports all beings without exception so that our lives are a cause for goodness and peace and freedom from suffering for all beings without exception. So it's a beautiful aspiration. And why not have a a really beautiful, deep aspiration for our lives? What's the harm? So good luck with your practice, everyone. Nice to spend these six weeks together, and give me a call if you need any help or have any questions about practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.